Well, if I didn't say this earlier, my name is David Appelt, lead pastor of Maranatha Canal Winchester. I'm glad that you're here with us today to worship. Um, today we are continuing our series through the book of Acts. Uh, we are in chapter 5, uh, verses 17 through 33. I'm excited that you're here with us today. We have Sangeeta Daw reading for us today, um, reading our passage. So if you would, uh, please stand with us. We stand out of reverence for God's word as we read it. So please stand with us today. And we'll read our passage together. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of his life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all with the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the, prison and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened and found no one inside... Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain and the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet he, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Uh, pray with me as we begin. Perfect Heavenly Father, we come before you and we are grateful as your people for what we just sang of, that your mercy is given so freely, and we do not deserve it. We're grateful that even though we don't deserve it, you freely give it, and we get to receive it and be made new, be forgiven and set free. So now as we turn our attention to your word, Lord, we open this word because it is from you, and we want to know how you would have us to live. We want to know how uh, more about our Savior. Lord, we want to know more beautiful things more glorious things about you, all that you are, all that you have done. So please, Holy Spirit of God, open our eyes to see them. We give thanks in the name of Christ today. Amen. As we come to uh, this next episode in the story of Acts, if you think of it that way, we're entering into um, something that we'll be in for the next, uh, not just this Sunday, but next Sunday, kind of a part one and part two of this story. This is our second run-in with the law throughout the book of Acts. This is kind of that part in the movie or the story, in the book, where you can start to make out where the tension is going to be, where the conflict is going to keep happening um, throughout the story. <clears throat> and today, um, honestly, I'm going to 
change things a little bit from what I had planned because as we were singing and everything, this just seemed like more of what I want us to, to come away with. There's going to be two things I want us to talk about, mainly two things of what obedience to God looks like, and then I'm going to talk about three things that Jesus gives us in salvation. Two things that obedience to God looks like, <clears throat> and three things that we are given in salvation through Christ. And we're going to make our way through these verses as we do it. Really, the main thing about this whole passage is the fact that Christ's kingdom is starting to grow, and as it does so, it creates friction. But even with all that friction and all that trouble, his kingdom continues to go forward. And this is perfect for us, I think, in the day and age in which we live. Would anyone agree, show of hands, that we live in maybe some tense times right now? All right, so I was expecting total 100% on that. I think the people that didn't raise their hands, you guys just are averse to raising your hands in church or something like that. Um, but I would say we live in those tense times, or at least it feels that way, right? At least it feels that way. And if it's not true on like a macro level, on, on a big level, it's true maybe for you individually. There's things that you and I can point to in our lives where we see uh, fearfulness, anxiety, tension, things to worry about. And so as we look at this text and we see the kingdom of Christ going through the, all those waves, we also see God taking care of his people, just like he'll take care of you and I today. First things I want us to look at, two things that we see about obedience to God. Look at verse 17. The first thing I want us to recognize is that when God is moving, when God is doing things, tension happens. When God is doing things and, and revival, even if we want to use that word, if that's happening, tension and conflict shows up. And the reason for that is because what happens when Christ's kingdom, when the church is going forward, it's pushing up against something, right? It's pushing up, as Christ says, up against the gates of hell, right? In verse 17, we, and verse 33, the beginning and the end of our passage, we see these strong emotions that is talking about the, the authorities against the church. They're filled with jealousy. Filled with jealousy. And then at the very end, they are enraged and want to kill them. So the movements of God in our lives are not, most of the time, nice and neat and calm. If you're like me, you go to the pool, you go to the beach or something, and you love like a lazy river. Like I love that type of thing where you could basically fall asleep and still be safe if you wanted to. And we often, so often in our lives, I think we pray for God to do things and to move, and we want him to, to, to bring salvation to someone. We want to see his kingdom go forward. We want to see ourselves change, and then we kind of get surprised when it's not like that. When the progress in our lives is not that nice and neat and calm. It feels more like whitewater rafting, right? It feels a little bit more like I might fall out of this boat. I might not make it all the way through. So one thing for us to remember today, don't be surprised when God is moving, there's friction happening along with it. In verse 19 uh, through 21, we see the command of the angels here, right? So they're arrested, they're put in prison, but during the night, an angel of the Lord comes, opens the prison doors for them. We don't know exactly how that looked, we just know that however he did it, nobody knew that they had left. Somehow, miraculously, nobody knew that they had even gone. He frees them, and they're probably thinking, all right, he's going to tell us to go somewhere else now. But instead, the angel says, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. 
And then the disciples, the apostles, go and do that. It's incredible that he tells them to go right back to where they got into trouble. Right? He doesn't tell them even to like, hey, you can go preach in less prominent portions of the city. Right? All these guys are from Galilee, and so they probably would have a temptation here to go back home, not to stay in Jerusalem, find an, an area of the country where maybe their people would be more receptive to the message of Christ, where there'd be less friction. No, they're told stay right here in Jerusalem. And not only that, I want you to go back literally to the scene of the crime. I want you to go back to the scene of the crime, and I want you to commit the crime again, because I want to, there will be a surety here that you will be arrested all over again. Why are they getting arrested? Because God wants them to be arrested. It's clear as he lets them out of the jail that if he wanted them to not be in prison, they wouldn't be there, right? But instead, he tells them to go back. You know, whenever you're watching like a horror movie or an action movie and you see a character headed for a situation that, that you know is, prob- is a problem for them, you know that they're about to be in danger, they might not know it, but even so, you're watching it and you're filled with dread about what is about to fall in the story. Don't you think that at least some of the apostles had that kind of feeling, the pit in their stomach as they're walking back to the temple? Maybe some of them, maybe Peter or somebody else was like, super, we're just going to be fine, let's go do it again. But at least a few of them right? They're human beings like us, had the same thing of like, man, we're going to go the very next day and do this again. Are they going to be more angry today than they were yesterday? Are they going to take us to prison or just, I don't know, kill us right there on the spot? One of the things that's amazing about this is we see God perform a miracle. We see that his miracles are not merely about giving comfort to the apostles, Right? God performs a miracle in letting them out, but the miracle is not about their comfort. The miracle isn't about their circumstances being nice and easy. It isn't about calming the waters of what they're walking through. No, the miracle is actually to put them right back into the thick of it. And so often, as is the case in our lives, we often pray for things solely because we want comfort again. That doesn't mean we shouldn't pray for comfort But it does mean that I think if we're praying for things that are about God reaching people, about God using us, about God growing us, it can't just be about our comfort. And we can't simply desire Him to work in ways that are easy, easiest for us. That brings us to the first thing about obedience to God that we see here in this passage. Obedience to God often is walking back towards trouble. Obedience to God is often walking into trouble and not away from it. That's what we see in what they tell the disciples to do, right? Go right back to where you came from. Do the same thing that made them mad the last time and trust God that he's going to do something good for it. And so often in our lives when there's opportunities to obey God and to be faithful, it doesn't go around the situations that we wish it would go around. It isn't the parts that are just the the path of least resistance for us. Often obeying God means walking back into trouble, tension, and friction. The second thing that's really crazy is that he tells them to go and to speak all the words of this life. So the apostles are given no authority to change the message of Christ in order to have less tension. They're given no authority to do that. He says, don't go back into the temple and, I don't know, rework your speech so that it's, you know, it creates less of a storm. Maybe you won't get arrested this time. 
He's like, no, I want you to go back and I want you to use all the words of this life. When he says that, he's speaking about Christ, right? The Sadducees are the ones who are in power here. Sadducees um, is a um, religious um, group of elites that really, they have uh, the chief priest at this time, and they don't believe in the resurrection at all. And he says, go back and preach about this life, this resurrection life, this resurrection life, and there's a resurrected man. And not only that, you have to preach all the words of it. You can't leave any of it out. You can't leave out the portions that are going to be tougher for the Sadducees to swallow. You have to preach every single thing that God has said to you. And the call for us today as Christ's church is the exact same. And I don't mean the church as the organization. I don't mean the church as like the person who's in the pulpit or something like that. I'm talking about the church as us, what it really is, the people. The call for us is the exact same. You and I, because this is God's message, this is God's word, he's the standard of truth. If there is any truth at all, it's only his standard. It means that we don't get to change any of it. We don't get to avoid the parts that our family members, our cousins, our aunt, uncle, brother, sister, wishes wasn't there in the word. As the apostles go and do this, they send to look for them in the prison because, again, nobody knows that they're gone, and they go and they find that there's just an empty cell. And remember, this is 12 guys. So in one night, the captain of the temple, without a door being unlocked or anyone noticing, 12 grown men are missing and nobody knew where they were. And then they get told, well, I know exactly where they are. They're in the temple doing what they were doing yesterday. And it says here the captain of the temple is perplexed when he hears about all these things. And you would be too if it was your job to keep track of them and they were gone and then all of a sudden it's like, well, where where can I find these prisoners I was entrusted? Oh, they went back right where I could find them again. Okay. So he makes his way back and they find them. They bring them to the trial, but it's really amazing that it says that they... He didn't bring them by force because he feared the people. Remember what we studied last week, right? In verses 12 through 16, it says that the apostles were performing all these miracles and there was really a high regard, a high um, reputation developing around the apostles, right? This is, I mean, the, the nation of Israel hadn't seen prophets and it hadn't really seen miracles for 400 years. And all of a sudden there's a group of 12 men being prophets and, and um, performing miracles. They're getting a high regard. And so he's like, well, I can't arrest them in public or the crowd might turn on me. So they went peaceably here. They didn't get handcuffed. They went peaceably. And they go and stand before the high priest. They go before the Sanhedrin, all the senate of the people of Israel. Everyone who has authority which Peter and John have been there before. In verse 28, um, it picks up sort of the trial, if we want to call that, moving into verses 28 through 33. The chief priest says this to them, We strictly charge you not to teach in his name, in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior 
to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. Verse 28 struck out to me this week as I was reading through it over and over again, every time I came to it, this amazing phrase where it says, look, we told you not to speak, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with this teaching. He filled Jerusalem, as if, as if in the streets of Jerusalem, if this was, you know, some kind of river, it was just overflowing everywhere. The teaching about Christ was everywhere in Jerusalem. It couldn't be shut off. It couldn't be, um, you know, rerouted down another street. It was everywhere flooding the streets in the people of Jerusalem. I just thought, man, what a prayer for us to pray. Isn't that our prayer as a church? Isn't that a prayer for us as the people of God? That we, our, ourselves, our families, our cities would be filled with the teaching of Jesus. Is that, is that our prayer? Do we actually pray things like that of God? Do we actually ask God of things that great? God, would you fill Canal Winchester with your teaching? Would you fill Lithopolis and Groveport and my family, the ones that don't love you, that don't know you, that don't want to follow you, would you fill them with your teaching in a way that isn't just great teaching for their heads, but it is a way that goes to their heart and works out in their lives? And God, would you make me full of your teaching? Would you make it so that I am so filled by your word and controlled by your spirit, Lord, that it is overflowing from me into everyone who sees me? God, would you please do that for me? Is that our prayer for us ourselves as a church plant? I hope it is. If there are a few sentences in the Bible I feel like so clearly articulate the desire we have as a church, and one of them is we want people to be filled with the teaching about Christ. We want people to be filled with the teaching about Christ. That's why we worship the way we do when we sing. It's why we do the readings that we do. It's why we pray how we do. It's why we preach how we do. We want to be filled with the teaching of Christ. So if you don't know what to pray for for this church plant, if you don't know what to pray for, if you don't know to pray for God providing for us a building, God providing financially for the work, God providing people that need to hear the good news to come and to hear, if you don't know what else to pray, pray that God would fill us with this teaching. I don't want to get stuck there all day. We'll move on. Verse 29 has maybe a phrase that is pretty famous in Scripture. And as you read this passage where Peter says um, defiantly, we don't know if he shouted it, we don't know if he just said it, we don't know if he said it reluctantly, but he said we must obey God rather than men. Be tempting to make this whole sermon just a study about how God has us respond to governments, but that's really not the main point of this passage. But really quickly, we'll touch on it. What does it mean that we must obey God rather than men? It means quite simply that in any competition of any kind between God and men, we know who you and I are accountable to. In any competition of any kind between God and men, we know who we're supposed to obey, who we are supposed to please. It's God and not man. It doesn't matter if that man or woman has an office and a title that's really impressive and important. It doesn't matter if he's a president or a regular old person like you and me. 
See, God created, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but really quickly, God did in fact create civil authority. He created three governments in this world. He created the family, he created the church, he created the civil government. And as the creator, he's the one who not only just created them and sent them off on their own, he also gets to define not only what their jurisdiction is, what their boundary is, right, where they're allowed to operate, he also says even within that boundary, you have to do it my way. Because all the authority as the creator belongs to him. If you think about it like, um, I, I know it's, it's August, and so last week, I think last weekend or maybe even this weekend, was the first NFL preseason game. If you're a Browns fan, you probably watched that game. Um, if, it, if a referee in the NFL just decided that it was his turn to make up new rules to the game of football, how long do you think it would last, he would last in the NFL? Maybe two games, right? Maybe one or two games because he doesn't actually have any authority in himself. He doesn't get to define what football is. He doesn't get to define how anybody's supposed to play. No, instead he's there to enforce the authority that the league has. It's the same exact way with any government you can point to on this planet, family, church, home. It exists to enforce the authority that God has entrusted to it, not to have their own authority. And that's true, if you, if you don't see it here in this text, you see it in places like uh, Philippians chapter 2 and, and even in Psalm chapter 2. Because as humans, believers, unbelievers, it doesn't matter who you are, every single one of us is accountable to God. It doesn't matter if somebody believes in Christ or doesn't. They're all accountable to God. And so you and I are, are called by God to obey the civil authorities, to obey lesser authorities uh, or the church or the home insofar as God's commands aren't broken. But as soon as they are, we're actually not given much of an option. We're told we must obey God rather than men. We're not really given an option. And so here you have a someone who sits both in the church authority and civil authority, and he's broken uh, both of his offices, and so they stand against him in this moment. And this is true, by the way, just like it's true for a government, um, it's true for a, uh, a family, for a parent. Parents, you don't get to exercise authority however you want. You have to do it how God says to do it. And even in the church, so don't let me or any pastor of any church, especially this one, ever try to have authority that they don't actually have. Don't ever listen to them when they go over the boundaries that God's word has spoken for their authority. This needs to be in our DNA as a church plant. To be a church in the, the 21st century, just like it has been for every single century, the church has to be convinced that there's only one Savior, there's only one Lord, there's only one true King, and it's Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we will fall in line with all sorts of things as we go through this world. But that statement of Christ alone is King is not going to calm things down in this situation, right? As Peter says that, you know they're just going to be angrier. You can hear the venom in their words as he says, you're trying to bring this blood upon us. You're trying to blame us. Not only are you filling Jerusalem with teaching, you're also making us look bad and calling us guilty for what happened to Jesus. That's an amazing statement because this blood was actually on them, Right? You go back to Matthew 27, 25, the Jewish crowd that is standing there as they condemn Jesus to be crucified, what do they shout? His blood be on us and our children. So this moment, the high priests are actually angry at the apostles for teaching things that are true. 
they're angry for the truth being told. I don't have to tell you this. Most of you guys in this room, you're old enough to have learned this lesson. Just because you're telling the truth doesn't mean it's always appreciated. Right? Especially when it comes to telling someone the, the, the truth to them that they are accountable to God. That they have to listen to this God. That they have to listen to this Christ. That's not always received with a smile and joy. Right? But listen, it's still the loving thing to do. And the reason it's loving is because it's necessary. And the reason it's necessary is because the story of Christ is true. You don't need to tell someone about Christ because it's good spiritual advice. You don't say you have to repent, you have to believe because, oh, it'd just be, it'd make your life so much smoother if you did. I think it's just a wiser way to live. No, we have to tell people this because it's absolutely true. The message of Christ is necessary because it's true. From the very start to the very end. And because it's true, it means that everyone you will speak with, everyone you will see, everyone in this room and beyond today will one day see Christ. You will one day see Christ. You will be welcomed in as a friend or you will be shut out. So the message of his forgiveness must be told. The amazing thing for these high priests right here is that the blood that is actually on their hands is the blood that can wash them clean. The same exact blood that is on their hands is the same blood that can wash them clean and can wash you and I clean today. The message that we get to tell people is not one of despair and dead ends. Okay, don't go and the message of Christianity is not just you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. The message of Christianity is one of forgiveness and freedom. That's what we get to share. You're guilty, but you're free. You're guilty, but you're forgiven. Think of these three gifts I want to point out, three gifts that Jesus gives us in salvation. You find them here in verse um, 31 and 32. The first thing it says that he gives repentance. He's exalted as leader and savior, which refers, uh, that term leader is kind of a weak translation. In your, in your Bible, it might say prince, it might say ruler. The word there is a word for author or founder. And, and using the word author, it's speaking to Christ having authority, right? An author has authority over that story. So it's speaking of Christ's authority. Another way to, to put that, instead of leader, I think that word's not strong enough. That word ought to be king or lord, he has been exalted as king and savior to give repentance. Repentance is a gift that's given. We're trapped, enslaved in our sin. We can't turn around. We can't break ourselves free of sin. We have no inclination in our own hearts to do so. Christ gives us repentance. That's the gift of repentance, that the enslavement to sin is broken. The thing that we have been following all of our lives because of our own sinful nature that we have inherited from our very first parents, it's broken. We're set free. We're turned away from sin. The second thing is given forgiveness of sins. The second gift you receive in salvation, you receive forgiveness of sins. Every single sin that you have ever committed, every single regret that you have, every single 
time that you stood up against God instead of following God. And listen, every single one that is yet to come in your future, every single misstep, misbehavior, and disobedience to Christ, even in the future, is forgiven by Him. Your slate is completely wiped clean. In Colossians, it says that he took the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You are set free, completely forgiven today through Christ. As far as the east is from the west, so far is the blood on your hands and my hands removed from us. We can't even see it anymore, and God promises not to remember it. That's how free you have been set, if we want to say it that way. That's how free you are. And lastly, and most amazingly, the Holy Spirit in verse 32. The Holy Spirit whom God gives, who gives to those who obey Him. It's one thing for you and for me to have our debts forgiven, but how many of us know that if today your house is paid off, your college debt, the cars that you maybe have a loan on, if every debt that you had was paid off completely right now, you would not be rich, right? Just having your debts forgiven doesn't make you filthy, overflowing rich, right? It just forgives the things that you owe. It just gets rid of the guilt that's there, the responsibilities that you and I have. But in order to have the Holy Spirit given to you, in order to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit, you, you aren't just made neutral before God. Your debts are not just forgiven. Instead, you're made holy. The salvation you have is not just a forgiveness of your debts. Now you're neutral before God. Try to earn righteousness and, and, and um, acceptance into heaven because to get to heaven, you must surpass the standard of God's perfect holiness. And even on your best day and my best day, we could not do that. So he doesn't merely forgive our debts. He also gives us the righteous record that Christ has earned. Gives it to us completely so that we are actually fitting temples for the Holy Spirit to live in. Not just forgiven, but made holy. Actually cleaned and transformed into holy before God. This is what the Savior, the leader, has given to you. As he says in the book of Isaiah, though your sins be as scarlet. I will make them white as snow. What's amazing about that sentence is not the shade of white, not the color of white that somehow is what we're focusing on there. No, it's the purity, the perfection of snow that has just fallen that has absolutely nothing disturbing it. Because what Christ is saying there is something that is as guilty and as blood-stained as scarlet. Absolutely detestable to look at. Absolutely detestable to see. He takes that. He takes you and me and makes us absolutely perfect, beautiful, holy, and righteous. That's what this Savior and Lord has given to us. See, Jesus is the only Savior, but He's also the true King. As the true King, we, we obey Him in all things, all the time the true Savior and the true King, because this verse is true. I'm not my own, for I was bought with a price. Today, you are not your own anymore, and that's really good news. Your own, like my own, was not leading anywhere good. We're not ours anymore. We are Christ's, 
And we now can glorify God in our bodies, as 1 Corinthians said. And that's true not just for you, but the world around you. The world around you is not its own. It was bought with a, with a price. Christ shed his blood to resurrect all of creation, redeeming all of it, all of it back to God. It's not just you. It's not just us individually. All of this world is not its own. It's bought with a price, so it must glorify God. And this statement is true no matter what the tension or the fears may be. No matter what the big friction in culture at large or in, in our organizations and things at large, no matter how big that friction may be or how personal. The tension, the fear, the worries, the hurts in your life. Christ is big enough to be Lord over those things. And he has a route for you to walk through those things in a way that is glorifying to him and a blessing to you at the same exact time. So whether it's the tension, the fears in our marriages, whether it's marriages that, maybe marriages that we wish hadn't ended, whether it's, it's marriages that we have longed for and we haven't received yet. It's kids, it's being a kid, it's being a parent, either way. The tension of walking through these things, of losing jobs, of searching for jobs, of knowing what we are to do in response to this or that thing. You have a Savior and a Lord to follow. And the amazing thing about this is that he is not a king who rules with some kind of brute force power, some kind of unfeeling authority or a cruel authority. No, instead, you have a God, you have a king, a savior, a friend who leads with righteousness, with gentleness, with freedom, with forgiveness, power, and great love. Great love. A steadfast love of this Lord of your Lord never ceases. So we follow him in that today. Pray with me. Father, we are cr proud to proclaim today that Christ is Lord and Lord of all. And Lord, we want this to be true where we are right now. Lord, we want ourselves, our families, we want them to be filled with this truth of Christ. We want them to be overflowing with the reality of who he is and what he's done. So Lord, would you please, would you please grant that prayer? Would you please exalt Christ among us so that all of the people around us can see him clearly? Lord, we ask all this in his name that has set us free from all of our sin and made us acceptable, pleasing in your sight. Amen.